This week on the Big Story Podcast. It was the largest airlift conducted in U.S. history, and it was executed in 17 days. And I think one of the other senators said it very well. It was a logistical success, but a strategic failure. It was the longest war in U.S. history. But this is long term. After all, our mission is not just Osama bin Laden, the Al-Qaeda organization. Our mission is to battle terrorism. 30,000 additional troops that I'm announcing tonight will deploy in the first part of 2010. The fastest possible pace. And now, 20 years later, the Taliban is back in power. There's a lot of heartbreak associated with this departure. We did not get everybody out that we wanted to get out. But I think if we'd stayed another 10 days, we wouldn't have gotten everybody out. What is life like in Afghanistan after the U.S. occupation? Psychologically, it's a good support for them that at least they go to school. And they are waiting for the next decision of Taliban. Next on the Big Story Podcast. I'm Joe Zarenko, a producer here at Big Story. The withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan reached its final moment on August 30th, 2021. It coincided with the Taliban toppling the Afghan government and regaining its rule of the country. The U.S. government received much criticism for the chaos the pullout left in its wake. According to the Pew Research Center, 7 in 10 Americans had a negative reaction to the withdrawal. The U.S. government and its NATO partners had invested billions to improve the road system while in Afghanistan. But ironically, those roads became a gauntlet where many Afghan forces and civilians perished. One year after the U.S. troop pullout, Our correspondent, Jason Motlog, visited Afghanistan. He took a 1,300-mile journey down some of those roads and witnessed the devastating cost of the war. This episode is called Abandon, Afghanistan After the U.S. Occupation. Two decades after the Taliban were ousted from power, The white flag is again flying over Afghanistan. As the United States military pulled out last year, ending its longest modern war in defeat, the Islamist militants overran all of the country's provinces in quick succession, toppling the Afghan government. Today, the streets of Kandahar, Afghanistan's second largest city, are peaceful, to the relief of Afghans whose lives have been mired in endless violence. Starting in Kandahar, the Taliban's birthplace, we'll drive more than 1,000 kilometers to Badakhshan province, a longtime bastion of resistance in the northeast that's experiencing Taliban rule for the first time. 
During the war, the Kandahar-Kabul Highway saw heavy combat daily. On the outskirts of the capital, we hear from an old Taliban fighter, Khan Mohammed, who was stationed there. Two of our guys would be off in the distance. I would inform them when the vehicles were coming. And when they reached the right spot, they would blow it up. Every day we were amazed that we had survived the night before. Until they left the country and we entered Kabul. And then we fired our guns in happiness because we had won the conquest. For five years, I was here on the, in the era of Taliban. Further up the road, we encounter Roshanak Wardak, a doctor who has lived among the Taliban for more than two decades. In 1996, I heard that there is uh, mothers, they lost their life during delivery, and also they lost their neonatal babies. So I preferred to come from uh, Pakistan back to Afghanistan and work uh, for them as a gynecologist and obstetrician. Three months after me, Taliban came. And when they came, they were very much harsh people. Like, they asked me to wear burqa. But I say to them, this is not in our Quran, and it's better to don't touch the, this matter, because it's very much important for me to um, save life of uh, a mother or a, ch a child. They heard this from me, and they said, so it's better, yes, it's not in Quran, and we should not uh, disturb you or your work in the hospital. So they left me. When Americans came to Afghanistan, at the beginning they helped much the people. They came and they uh, started reconstruction of our country. And uh, they um, spent much money here. Nobody can deny this, uh, especially in Kabul. And uh, they improved our education uh, system, they improved our medical system, and uh, engineering, everything. But, uh, you know, uh, because they invaded our country, and this is not good for any nation, they made big mistakes here. They spent about 90% that, of that money in Kabul. America forgot uh, provinces of Afghanistan. You see this Wardak. We are living in 1,000 years ago. The Taliban had recently decreed that girls were barred from attending school beyond sixth grade. I never, never expect this from 
Taliban. I said no, Taliban are kind people, they are Muslim, they are Afghan. And most of them, they have their own uh, daughters. And uh, they will not be as much uh, unkind as they did that act. And they withdraw the girls from the classes. This was not a good day. It was, it was a bad day in our history. In Kabul, religious minorities like the Shiite Hazaras have been targeted with attacks at places of worship and schools. In the capital, we meet Mohammed Yan Hassani. He's a senior at a high school where five students and five adults were killed during two explosions. I exited the school gate and was going to head home. I was just past the gate when the explosions happened behind me. It was a really dangerous explosion. The sound was so scary. I got injured myself. Shrapnel from the bomb hit my back and my head. My other friends who were with me were severely injured, and some of them died. When I see this street, I remember that scary incident. And this makes me very sad. Every day, innocent people are getting injured and dying in Afghanistan. We are living in a bad situation. Do you want to keep going to school? Or do you feel like it's too dangerous? Obviously, this is all very scary. When we go to school, we worry, our family worries. But I want to continue my education. I don't want to stop for any difficult circumstance. I'm in the 12th grade. God willing, I will pass my college entrance exam and go on to achieve success. No one claims responsibility for the high school bombing, but the Taliban's sworn enemy, the Islamic State, has been linked to a surge of terror attacks against Hazaras and other religious minorities since the Taliban takeover. The brutal irony is that until recently, the Taliban targeted these same military groups themselves, killing hundreds of innocent civilians in bomb strikes. Now it's their responsibility to defend them. Will that happen? This is what school principal Mohammed Saman Watanar had to say. It is the responsibility of the Islamic Emirate. They have to protect holy places, public spaces and education centers. We have taken measures to secure our school from the inside. They need to do the same on the outside. We hope the Islamic Emirate will take these matters seriously. As the road leads north, the landscape changes. 
we get different perspectives of daily life in the country. Still, the economy is the main concern wherever we go. Here's Jason again. One of the most overdue large-scale infrastructure projects is a renovation of the Salong Tunnel. Built by Soviet engineers high in the Hindu Kush mountains that divide the north from Kabul, the 1.6-mile-long tunnel has fallen into a treacherous state of disrepair due to poor maintenance and heavy traffic. As many as 9,000 vehicles travel through the tunnel each day, nearly double its intended capacity. Gaping potholes and a lack of light cause regular breakdowns that can snarl domestic trade and suffocate motorists trapped inside. Most of the trucks waiting in line to pass through the tunnel bear loads of coal destined for Pakistan. The cash-strapped Taliban government has tripled the price of coal to boost its revenues, driving a mining boom across Bagalan province. At the Karkar mine, workers haul about 120 tons a day to the surface, the hard way. Ahmad Farid, father of six, works the coal face seven days a week. I've been working in this mine since I knew my left and right hands. I don't have any other options. I need to take care of my family and there's no other work. I haven't been paid my wages here in two months. But what else can I do? If you don't work, you can't live. People are in need and they come to work. From the mines to the hills, villages and cities, people are wary of an already poor economy getting worse. Neither government has done anything for poor people. They have nothing to do with us. They have always only dealt with powerful people. Impoverished farmers say they've always been neglected by the central government and don't foresee any changes coming. The only thing that's changed for us is we're facing drought and inflation. The drought was brought by God. The other change is that our market has become very expensive. We don't even have electricity here. There's no government that we can point to and say they are working on our behalf to help us. There's nothing here for us. Many of the youth in our village have gone to Iran. In villages and towns where Taliban rule is more rigid, locals have mixed feelings about the new government. Unease about a dismal economy and the future of girls' education runs deep. When they take power and they want to show their power first to their own country, then to the world, they start making rule and regulation for the female because they cannot make rules for men because men will show reaction with them. So they make rule for women 
It's very much dangerous. I hope we women, we find any solution for this. I don't have any hope for Taliban in this aspect. That's all for the Big Story podcast this week. We want to thank our correspondent in the field, Jason Motlog, as well as my colleagues here in the studio, Caleb Lopez and Felipe Lozano Puche. If you want to check out the full-length documentary, we'll drop the links on the show's notes, or you can just go to CGTN Now on Apple TV.